There's so many smiles this morning. <laughs> it's so great. I keep moving the screen so I can uh, see all the faces. And I see several people who are on this island with me, at least two. We got Donna and Marla and then a couple of others uh, in Hawaii and all around. But <clears throat> I was just struck with how many smiles there were. So that might be a, a useful um, form to include in your sitting. Just a little smile <laughs> as we sit together for just uh, uh, the next few moments to settle and, and appreciate this wonderful opportunity.
to begin with the four practice principle. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. As some of you know, um, I'm just coming off retreat here in Hawaii. It's been a, a kind of a long haul from the third week in March <laughs> to now here right at the end of May. Um, all wonderful and rich. Um, but one uh, powerful and lovely and enriching event after another with so many of you when we gathered for the retreat here in Hawaii uh, last week, we there was a joke, is we all should have brought a little picture frame to put around our head so we could recognize each other for the little square. Because <laughs> when they have the whole body, it's like, oh, oh yeah, I've seen you online. Uh, it was wonderful to, to get together. The retreat that we just completed uh, for more than uh, 20 years uh, Donna and I, who's with us today, by the way, um, if you see Donna's image, she's in the, the Koa cabinet, Hui Holana, right now. Um, we we shared the uh, leading of this wonderful week here, and we we called it the heart of meditation. Um, I remember sitting at the the table during a. A Hakomi training in Austin at Tenzo, the retreat center that Aaron used to help manage, deciding that that we would come to uh, Hawaii. She invited me, and we would uh, we would try this thing and see how it went. And that's the name we came up with. And now, 23 years later, that was in 1999. We just completed our final week. Uh, that. Uh, a beautiful expression and offering has come to its end uh, fully and beautifully and completely. And when we thought in 2019 it might be our final, um, but then some of the Hakomi students, um, Maru Serrano and some others had said, well, you still have something to offer. Why, why don't we try another one? And then it took us three years <laughs> to get back because of the the pandemic it was first called embodied mindfulness and then it ended up as Hakomi as spiritual practice since uh, there were so many of the Hakomi community folks who wanted to come. Um, 
as we began our retreat, uh, Don and I decided we should ask a pretty important question. If the title of the week was Hakomi as Spiritual Practice, most people had experience in the methodologies and experiences of Hakomi, but maybe we should answer the question, what is a spiritual practice? And what would make it such? So we posed this early on and, and sat with it and, uh, and worked with it for the entire week. Less about Hakomi itself, that, that we have some experience in, the uh, process of assisted self-discovery and mindfulness and all of the, the beautiful um, sensitivity and expressivity that goes through Hakomi. But what, what is a spiritual practice actually and how do we understand that in contrast to uh, psychological or yogic practices that are focused on personal improvement and, and where does mindfulness fit into this whole thing? These are the kind of questions that we were sitting with. I'm sure many of you, you know, these are, these are common questions. Um, you know, last time I spoke a few weeks ago, I, I brought the sort of basic question. It's like, what are we doing? Why are we practicing? <laughs> like the real fundamental question. But then once you say, okay, I'm, I'm here. I, and what is a spiritual practice? These are, these are pretty basic questions. I, I did what all of us do, you know, in asking a question is you go on the internet, like how do people define spiritual practice? Uh, so here's, here's an amalgam. This is a little synthesis of a couple of them. Uh, what I found, it says a spiritual practice is any regular and intentional activity that establishes, develops, and nourishes a personal relationship with the mystery, the divine, the absolute, you know, whatever you want to call it, and a path through which we allow ourselves to be transformed. It's a discipline of returning over and over and remembering our deepest intention. And the path, the journey or pilgrimage, it's talked about differently in different places, is without end, but which continually opens as we live our way into it. So it's a regular and intentional activity. It develops or nourishes a relationship with the sort of unknowable. And there's often a path through which we allow ourselves to be transformed. And there's a discipline. There's discipline of returning to our deepest intention. And that this path or pilgrimage or journey hasn't, doesn't have an end, but continually unfolds. So these are just some of the qualities that uh, I began to, to see if I looked up definitions. <clears throat> and I also wanted to, to say that when I was listening to the offerings that uh, in the last few weeks, you know, Suzanne talked about this, uh, the dynamic questions of, for discovery, uh, embodying the question of being alive. Um, she spoke about much more, but I like this idea of spiritual practice involves a dynamic kind of questioning of discovery. And then Joel, you know, spoke about the wellspring of joy 
that can move in practice of restoring the practice of joy and play, uh, the play of emptiness in a way. And then th through it, you know, Peg a couple of weeks ago spoke about the function of attention as support for this radiant relational power that infuses our life through practice. So they're weaving some of these uh, pieces together. And I thought, you know, it's, it's as if we find some way to dance with emptiness or understand the way that emptiness dances in the universe. But of course, what arose immediately also are all of the things, this is very teacherly, you know, I think about, okay, and here are the things that practice is not, that, that people think about. They come to me and they say, oh, I have a practice uh, and it makes me really relaxed and calm. Relaxation isn't a spiritual practice and being calm and peaceful isn't a spiritual practice. People say, well, my practice is gardening or walking around the lake or painting. Those are wonderful practices and I recommend every one of them. And they will bring you some of these beautiful aspects of peace and ease, but they're not transformative spiritual practices. They're wonderful things to do, nourishing things to do that may lead you towards spiritual practice. But because it makes you relaxed and calm, does it make it a spiritual practice? Some people say, well, I'm, I, I engage in self-reflection. You know, I sit and get calm and, and reflect. And that may be an element of spiritual practice at times, but turning toward the self can reinforce self-reflection and self-identification. And more of a kind of a, almost a hardening into the self, not a freeing of the space in which the self arises and passes away. So self-reflection isn't actually it. People say, well, but I'm mindful. So if I'm using mindfulness, then it's a spiritual practice. You have to remember secular mindfulness, the way that it's taught nowadays is essentially amoral. Because without the precepts, you can be mindful as you do some things that are not very wholesome. You can mindfully steal or lie and distort on social media. Uh, Buddha's mindfulness was a function to open beyond personal concern, to not, not for the benefit of personal concerns, but to open us beyond. Other people will say, well, I'm focusing on or worshiping a deity. So that makes it a spiritual practice. Uh, it might be religious, but it may not be a practice necessarily. And goodness knows we know the limits of, of this kind of thing. Um, there are many people I knew in the church in which I grew up, which uh, they focused on a deity, on, on a god. <clears throat> but I couldn't tell that much spiritual practicing was going on in personal transformation. There's a lot of spiritual bypassing. And if I was doing this, it kind of took care of things. If I was worshiping. So that doesn't seem to be the whole bit. And believing in something. I mean, believing in something is not the same thing as a living embodiment down to your bones of the mystery that spiritual practice can open. It makes it smaller, actually. And then there's sort of the new age thing of uh, get out of your head and get into your body. 
what's so wrong about clear thinking? Certainly, if people elevate thinking and concepts over embodiment, that's a problem. And also, if you elevate embodiment over thinking, that's a problem. Uh, because you, you might just end up in emotionality and things without... The, the function of maturity is to think and feel at the same time and find them as one confluent activity that moves through this body, of course. And last in, in my list that I came up with of what people tell me, they say, well, I'm being more loving and more relational. That's great. Love does seem to be a thread that moves through spiritual practice, but it's not enough. Anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows. You can love someone and it's not enough. So, these are some things to just kind of poke a little bit at what people say. Well, I'm, I'm doing a spiritual practice. But what most of us are doing are things that are management functions, not spiritual practices. They're wonderful, useful, productive, helpful management functions. And so what I'm suggesting is that our a spiritual practice is more about mystery than management. When I've, you've heard me say this before, a, a quote that I really remembered from Katagiri Roshi when um, he was asked, what is a practice? He said, it's the one thing you do under all circumstances. Now, what's interesting is that was his definition of practice, not spiritual practice. The one thing you do, in other words, what are you actually practicing? Because the one thing you might do under all circumstances is lie or drink or I don't know, you know, there's a lot of things you could do which are not particularly wholesome. That's the thing you turn to. That, that is what you practice. And what you practice, you'll get better at. So you have to really notice what it is you're practicing. And is it wholesome or unwholesome? And last time I think I mentioned uh, that Joko Beck famously suggested that your practice would... Uh, open your being to a larger container to hold more of life so life energy could flow more fully. So there's something about the discipline of continuing over and over that you turn to and that opens you beyond just the smaller smaller self or personal concerns. And once again, I want to say there's nothing wrong with management techniques. To be calm is better than being anxious. <laughs> to have a focus and being self-reflective is better than being just distracted. And uh, there are a lot of ways in which the things I mentioned can be useful. They're just not spiritual practices. So through the teachings of Apamada, and I don't mean Apamada as a place, I mean the Buddhist teaching of Apamada, of mindful, diligent care, and our Zen practices and forms, all of these unfold as a mandala, like an... Um, an infinite ecosystem. Think about it in terms of our verses that we use, okay? So we're, we're called to practice for many reasons, as I spoke about last time, but the great matter is kind of at the bottom of it all. When we're asking, like, what is this? 
I've been given this body. I've been given this life. I know I'm going to die. I don't really appreciate it, but I kind of know it in my head. And as it comes closer, it's, it's really important. And this is what's on the Han, you know, great is the matter of birth and death. That's what calls us to practice literally and also philosophically in some ways. Literally the sound of the Han. So there's an echo that calls us. And then we're asked to chant the confession or repentance when we start our liturgy. That's the first thing we do. Basically, we have to confess that we're human and that we don't get to get out of that. We're like a chimera of karma expressed in this impermanent form. And yet we have to take responsibility for it and live it out. This is what we've got. We're going to have to live this out. So we say all our ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, you know, born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. It's like, okay, yikes, I've got a body. I don't understand what this thing is. I'm going to die, but this is an amazing opportunity. So now I have to realize there's this infinitely interwoven, contingent, thing I call a life, which I have full responsibility for. And it seems to be woven with these other people's. Doggone it. And now it's more complicated. And so if, if I'm going to be stripped of my management strategies, or at least not, not only contained by them, but able to step further, then what am I going to trust? If I can't just trust getting more calm, having more happiness, getting more stuff, what can I trust? Well, the, the refuges are next. Oh, there's an essential freedom that is at the core of everything in me and everything and everyone else. There's a Dharma. There's a way that it moves and flows, which I can come into a relationship with and understand more fully and appreciate. And there are folks which I can do this with, which help remind me and support me and love me through it. That's the Sangha. So suddenly the call and then a return to what's essential began to flow together in this mandala. And so how do I how do I move with that energy in a way that is wholesome, which is the word I keep using? And we have the four practice principles as a guide or a path or a, a pilgrimage, a journey that we can use. We say, how are we caught in self-centered dream? We can begin to notice our habits, what we cling to. Essentially, what do you practice? And how we hold to these practices or to these habit patterns of these things that are automatic, usually because they're fear-based, because they're protectors. They're not bad. They've, they've been developed over time out of conditioning. And we begin to see life through these parts, through these conditioned frameworks, these lenses, this automatic, which is in our body. So we're caught in this sort of dream-like delusion and we hold to these things and cling to them because we're frightened. And then the turn, of course, is the third line in the four practice principles, is if we're willing to move towards life as it is, then the larger container begins to unfold. We're not trying to protect this small life we're willing to plunge into the fullness of life.
And the question turns from not what happens, oh, bad things are happening, so my life is bad. Good things are happening, my life is good. That's never going to change. That's going to keep happening. The turn is, how am I going to respond? How am I going to work with what I've been given? And that way, each moment, life as it is the only teacher, being just this moment, the way of compassion is both wise and compassionate to follow a way that flows with life. And this hell has to be embodied. So we chant the verse of the robe because we wear the teachings, the vast universal teachings. We begin to harmonize our lives with all being. Peg mentioned in some of the, in the Lotus Sutra and some of the other early sutras and the four embraces how the teacher said, you know, it's hard to change the mind of humans. <laughs> you can pacify it, you can distract it, you can do all those management strategies, but to actually transform, it's got to be embodied. And then our vow says, and because we realize in this interweaving, in this mandala of noticing what life is, returning to something that we can have faith in, taking refuge there, having a path we can follow, embodying that path, then we turn towards our relationship with everyone and the Bodhisattva vow calls us to turn toward all beings, to see through all delusion, to step through all Dharma gates, to embody the way of freedom as our practices. This is the aspiration for everyone, including ourselves. And at the end of most of our ceremonies, there's a little phrase. It's also in a, uh, another form in our meal chant that sometimes is overlooked. We live like a cloud in an endless sky, like a lotus in muddy water, one with the pure mind of Buddha. And it's reflecting on this essential aspect of practice. We live like a cloud in an endless sky. We live free, untethered in this vastness, and at the very same time rooted in the mud of humanity and contingent life. And that's where the Buddha flowers. And it's this dual nature that determines our spiritual practice. Coming to terms with not trying to solve but open to this great mystery that both things can be true. That it's all one thing, actually. Because the last line says, one with the pure mind of Buddha. And then that's once again expressed and embodied as apamata, as mindful, diligent care with each other. So these are, are things that I was reflecting on uh, as a result of my practice through the week. How we can turn towards mystery rather than endlessly seeking better management. How we can meet each dynamic question and take it deeper, as Suzanne suggested, and in the process find joy and even play in the field of emptiness as Joel suggested, and focus and sharpen and develop and together open our attentional capacities as Peg taught. 
with our dance with emptiness. And so these are the things that I, once again, I said, reflected on in my own practice through this last week. And as I sat with my own question, what is uh, spiritual practice? So what about you? What are your, your, your questions, things that matter to you in this regard? Um, I will uh, say, if, if you don't mind, um, Adana, would you raise your hand just for a second? Because we spent so much time together, <clears throat> if she's still there. There she is. I just wanted to connect with you a, a moment and, and see if you had anything you wanted to say based on and what I'm reflecting on here. <laughs> I said, the real reason I called on you is I just don't want to be done. So we're just... I know. <laughs> okay. I dreamt about you all night. <laughs> oh, you didn't. Uh, uh, you know, everything that you said today uh, starts me really questioning again which i love because you're mm -hmm. saying embrace the mystery and yeah what i'm so aware of in, in this beautiful island in this beautiful setting is that for me part of um thinking of an an, a, an intentional practice that's spiritual is uh to really consciously meet every moment and every person and every thing uh, with reverence mm -hmm. for me that's the quality the reverence is to appreciate um, the gift that everything is and that it's sacred you know and those words are you know they they, they kind of imply spirituality i think but there's a quality about that that needs to be intentional is <laughs> sometimes really spontaneous in some situations but needs to be intentional most of the time yeah. and um especially for those times when we're really challenged when it doesn't feel obvious or easy exactly yeah and and you know every time you get a a whole group of people together in a place that's inspirational but also healing in the sense of that it gets things moving mm -hmm. which it does here and then then things arise that that open me up to more dimensions of of how to do that how to be intentional reverent and see and meet everything as if it's sacred mm -hmm. Exactly. That I was just reading something, uh, rereading something from uh, our friend Peter Hershock, uh, who's over in Honolulu, about his practice. And he uses kind of interesting words. He said these practices uh, cultivate a capacity for appreciative and contributory virtuosity. It's kind of fancy words, but you and I talk about it as being convex and concave, mm -hmm. able to receive the world in a certain way and respond back uh, just with, and of course, the breath. Mm -hmm. is an easy way to remind us and to be able to continue to breathe in the midst of whatever that's the virtuosity part 
expressive and contributory. We offer ourselves to the world and receive the world in a way that uh, just doesn't cause more problems. I think the breath is is part of what can bring us back to the present moment Mm -hmm. continually, um, but also remind us, I I love the the way our friend DeWitt summarized when I offered him a one breath meditation. He said, take it all in and give it all back. Yes. And you originally, the words you used were? Well, let it all in and let it all go. Yeah, and then we, we kind of tweaked it a little bit. He tweaked it, and and uh, and I love that because there's a generosity in about that contribution part. Right. It's virtuos- virtuosity and contribution. So it's something new. That's what I hear in virtuosity. Um, how how is each moment, each person, each uh, experience actually new? That's Fresh. the opening. Fresh. Yeah not known before so opening to the mystery and and how is it a gift Mm -hmm. and how can i respond to it in a way with generosity (laughs) thank you and this is the the problem when don and i get started (laughs) (laughs) or or maybe it's the gift it's fun because (laughs) this is uh kind of what happened so uh uh, it's, it's part of why i wanted to to have a little more more time because I'm integrating. I'm sure you must be too mm-hmm. uh, from from the week. And I thought this is another way to to do it with with others and extend. Even though we have several people online here who have been in the the retreat and extend it out. Oh, and I see Suzanne. Thanks, Donna. I love you. Hello, Flint. I just love when you and Donna get together. It's like it's like genius jazz musicians. <laughs> we, we missed you at the Hui, of course. Well, I followed you and I'm so glad you asked Donna on so that I got to see her and see you, Donna. Yeah, so I was following you all week there. Um, and um, what I really appreciated about what you said today, Flint, was in in my practice, what has really mattered is the forms of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the bringing the the right thinking and um, the body together get, happens in the forms. And I, you know, I, I've not been a big fan of forms for a long time. I mean, this is my this was my engine practice. Um, but the recent retreat I attended, the more that I plunged into the forms, the more like the bow, especially the bowing and the full prostrations, the more I, I, I felt some transformation happening without my saying, oh, I'm going to transform this. Yes, which is, isn't it, that kind of idea at all. Right, which is just another manager going, okay, we're going to go after transformation here. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it is at all. Because yeah, there's no spiritual materialism in essentially just surrendering yourself mm-hmm. to the form rather mm-hmm. than your personal idea of how you would like it to be. Yes, yes. And what I got from doing the prostrations was what surrender really is, is surrendering the small self to the big self surrendering conditioning 
to the absolute or to the mystery and being completely open to it. Well, you know, Katagiri's famous saying about that. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm, I'm going to make a symbol. Okay. Okay. Let, let the self rest on the self and allow the flower of your life force to bloom. Mm, mm, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's in the yoga sutras of Patanjali, I don't have it memorized, but Donna could say it is uh, exactly the same teaching. Mm. In fact, can she come on at the same time, Maria? Yes. Yes. I'll okay. just. So just okay. we'll get Donna back with you. Good. There she is. Now you're with her. See. Oh, good. Hello, Donna. Hey, Suzanne. The, the yoga version, I think, is quite beautiful. It, it's actually from the Upanishads. Oh, is it okay? Ancient uh, Sanskrit teachings, and it says, I, I also like to show people with the small and the big ass. It says, lift up the self by the self. Mm. Don't let the self droop low, for the self is the self's only friend, and the self is the self's only foe. Mm. Lift up the self by the self. Mm. Mm. Oh, I really like that, Donna. Mm. And so these various ways that we're talking about it mm. allow the, the forms or the embodiment and enactment of this beyond concept, yes. which is the level of transformation. Yes, uh, that's why I think it's so important that in any spiritual practice, we need a movement practice like yoga. And I really loved your form of yoga, Donna, um, or Qigong, like I'm doing now, um, or Tai, tai Chi. Um, any of those is really so essential for grounding in an authentic spiritual practice. Yeah, and if you think about it based on the retreat that we just did in Madison and also what you experienced mm -hmm. when you were at uh, Dharma Rain, mm -hmm. is uh, at least the tradition that you're in, Zen practice, is taught through the forms. Mm -hmm. It's really not, people think it's intellectual, but it's not. It's taught through the body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both. You could riff any time as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you're, you're my Soto Zen John Batiste, actually. So. <laughs> and one more um, a word from our sponsor. Uh, keep an eye out for Donna's new book on Soma Yoga, which is you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. The, the next few months. So. Okay, great. P-S-O-M-A. Mm -hmm. Soma Yoga. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bye, everybody. What are your questions around spiritual practice? Do you have any? Hi, Flint. Hi there. Hi. Um, so, in terms of being open to the mystery, surrendering to, to the mystery, the closest I feel that I get to that place is um, appreciating the miracle of our bodies, of nature. What gets in the way for me is I'm always evaluating everything. Um, and um, today, for example, I got a parking ticket and um, it said that I hadn't paid enough. And um, on the way home from where I was, I was convinced that it was because I was too lazy 
to check my license plate number, which I've never memorized completely. So the whole way home, which was, all, thank goodness, only about 10 minutes, I was scolding myself and thinking it was a very good thing that I was doing this, that I was correcting myself for cutting corners and this kind of thing. So turns out that was that wasn't the reason. Apparently, he thought I didn't put enough money in. But it was really amazing to me how, number one, the scolding was very natural. And then it was felt to be a positive thing in terms of correcting myself, improving myself, all of that. So that's kind of the question is how to um, recognize that as a foe, as uh, Donna was saying, a foe to to being open to the mystery of what's around us. Well, if I think about it, it's a perfect example of you were you were caught in a self-centered dream. Because you even said, I tend to do this, like that's what you practice. And you're holding to self-centered thoughts because you thought it was a good thing. It's it's a whole system that you've you learned, and that's the psychological side. And you know the reasons and the family context in which it was developed and how that would serve you. But by telling us the story and by reflecting on it, you've entered into a question. Like, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't the only practice here. It's the habitual one. It's a common one I'm familiar with. Um, but you didn't stay in it completely because some part of you noticed you were doing it and some part of you said, oh, I even thought that was positive. You know, and so constant evaluation was the name you gave this process. So that must be a management strategy you learned a long time ago, once again. And what's the fear if you're not doing that all the time? If you're not constantly evaluating what bad is going to happen. I don't know. And that's, that's the fear. That's the worst one, isn't it? It's exactly the fear of not knowing and also fear of freedom. I think fear of freedom. Well, here you go. And there are the things that actually spiritual practice invites freedom through not knowing. On the spiritual side, it says, oh, that's the path. And on the psychological side, that's the problem. And that's where we get caught. And that's why it requires a teacher or spiritual friends that says, oh, Rosemary, let's talk about this. Let's be together. You know, if you allow me, I went back and looked at the description for inquiry that we have written up, you know, on the website and thing to see if it matched my idea of a spiritual practice. And I'm, I'm going to read just a, a little tiny bit of the beginning of it. So listen, listen to this. Inquiry is an opportunity to participate in an intimate investigation about how to live an awakened life in the everyday world. And these warm encounters were offered a chance to explore our struggles and questions related to releasing unnecessary suffering. 
This opportunity opens in the direct meeting with a Zen teacher in a group setting and unfolds further through sharing the intimacy of practice-based inquiry with others. Without relying too much on ancient rituals or formalized structure, inquiry is an opportunity to share our deepest sorrows and our greatest joys as we face the challenges of our everyday lives, held in the warm embrace of Sangha. And it's a place where the Dharma emerges naturally and spontaneously in this intimate meeting. Does that sound like a spiritual practice? And that's the, that's the container that makes it possible to face the thing that you're terrified by, which actually is the opening. Otherwise, I think it's just too hard. And another tricky piece, you don't have to have it all worked out psychologically. Yes, there are aspects of trauma and psychological that can be in the way so strongly that you can't move forward along the path. That's true. And you need to do that work. You know this well. But the fact that working all that out is what moves us into the space isn't, isn't the whole thing. It's, it's a very different paradigm. Yeah. And so you're noticing this thing which came from an ordinary activity, a parking ticket, showed you, oh, here's an entry point. Here's a habit. Here's where I cling. Here's where I hold. Here's an opportunity to turn toward life as it is and move into the, a, a deeper question of what would it be like to live without constantly evaluating myself in the world? Staying alert, awake, but not with the veil, the lens of evaluation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Aloha. I just realized after I raised my hand, I'm sitting where there's lots of noise. So anyway, here it won't be, it'll be brief. <laughs> Are you on Maui? Uh, yes, I'm in Maui. I will go to Kauai later today. Oh, good. And um, meet up with Ed Sanchez. <laughs> anyway. More Sangha meetings in the Pacific. Yes. Um, I, I just had to say hello. <laughs> how are you how are you doing uh, judith was in the retreat in molokai as you might imagine given that she's in maui how are you doing today very well and yeah. i completely relate i want to thank rosemary too i just want to say i'm right there with you sister i'm <laughs> right there and making an um, intentional effort to let it be. Watch it. Learn from it. That constant evaluation that heretofore has not let me speak very much in this group mm -hmm. because I don't have any worth, anything worthwhile to say. I also want to uh, say that I know that there are times when it was really rough during the retreat just because of many, many factors. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. And, it's, and it's good to see that you come to a different place. It's good to see. It's, it's good to be here. And I spent the time since I left you getting here. Yeah, good, good. Well, I hope that your, your travels are good and uh, 
that you can give Ed a hug for all of us and, uh, and enjoy your time. Hi, Becky. Hi, Flint. Thank you so much for that. I think it wove together many parts of things that are real basic and real expansive. Um, and I don't really have exactly a question, but I really wanted to share something. After we got going, I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I, I want to share this, which is that across the last week, there's been a song arising for me huh? and coming to me. And uh, it's not anywhere near done. It's completely in process, but I'd like to share it. How simple can I make this? How simple let it be. Breathe in. Breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Sharp rocks in the water, smoothed by the flow. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. Breathe out stillness into nothing, no thingness to peace. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Everybody is giving you the little, can you see? <laughs> I have to change my view to do that. Oh, yeah. but oh, not, oops, that. not that one. <laughs> you change the gallery view and watch, look at everybody. If they're going to go, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I, it's not done, but I'm not necessarily the one to complete it. And I'd like to share it in a way at some point where everybody can keep adding their own part that's current at the moment, because it feels like that kind of thing. Yes, yes, that's so beautiful. Thank you. And thank you thank for the courage to offer it uh, in its current state, it doesn't have to be perfected, and to offer it with your own voice. It's kind of like Judith was saying, it's a big thing to share your voice, you know, with everybody. And so it's, it's lovely to, uh, to hear your expression. Love you all. Up to you. <clears throat> Here we are in the last just couple of moments of our, of our time. Uh, I was thinking that uh, Becky uh, sort of, uh, in a way, did our final chant for us, didn't she? It was, it was so lovely. If we now um, use our voices for the uh, verse of the robe uh, it's a it's a nice reflection on the essence of of the embodiment of spiritual practice how we take it forward so let's let's do that now vast is the robe of liberation a formless field of benefaction 
wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Thank you so much. And, and thanks, Donna, for coming on and helping me out a little bit. And everyone who, who came forward, it's always a blessing to hear your voices and for you to share your heart in this way. Thank you so much, Flint. Thank you. And, uh, and thank you all for showing up and being here uh, today. I was going to say this evening again, but today, I'll stick with today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Appamada's programs and its facilities are supported through all of your generosity. So if you would like to, to make a donation and offer Dana to teachers such as Flint, and I see Laurie's here tonight as well, um, please do go to the um, Appamada calendar at appamada.org forward slash contrib contribute. And there you'll see an opportunity to offer Dana to teachers or to just to offer Dana. Generally, you can make a one-time donation or you can sign up for for regular to offer Dana on a regular basis, but anything at all is very welcome. And thank you all so much. Thank you. Your presence is more than anything. And um, and if you'd like to continue to the conversation that Flint has begun, then please do um, stay right where you are and join myself and others on the virtual porch. Thank you all so much.